Adventure Anything. Jeanette Barnes brings you insights from people behind the news and people like you. Now, Venture Anything. Today we're talking about what is often called lunch shaming, the practice in some schools of giving a child a cheaper lunch if the child has a certain level of meal debt. Joining us is Patricia Baker, Senior Policy Analyst at the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute. The group published a report on this issue in March, and it did name a number of South South Coast schools as having policies that do allow for that practice. Um, Whether or not they enforce it is another issue, and we've talked to some schools about that. But let's start with um, Patricia just telling us, if you would, Patricia, a little bit about this issue and what it means. Sure. Good morning. We are a poverty law center, statewide center in Massachusetts, and I focus on food security issues, uh, including issues that affect children, older adults, uh, working families. Uh, We have been seeing uh, a growing uh, increase in in, uh, school meal debt among low-income families. Often uh, during the start of the school year, particularly in parts of the state that have seasonal employment, vacation spots, people are well employed, but the job ends, they get into uh, debt, they don't have unemployment, and they don't realize perhaps that they can actually apply at any point during the school year for free or reduced price meals. Uh, Families end up having um, unpaid school meal debt because they simply can't afford the $2.50 per lunch, particularly if there's multiple children in the families in different grade levels. And we understand that school districts have to uh, meet the costs of providing food services, but we also know that they have an obligation affirmatively to help families get onto programs that pay for the meals and work with those families where possible to reduce the debt. At the end of the day, what we're concerned about is children not being caught in the middle of that debt. So the practices we were able to document in the report involved everything from high school simply not feeding kids if they didn't have money to pay, to middle and elementary schools allowing children to have an account cap of meals uh, after which they would be served uh, the alternate meal, often a cold cheese sandwich. Uh, possibly with milk and a piece of fruit, but nonetheless a practice that for a child in the cafeteria line can be very uh, embarrassing and very shaming, and every child around that student knows that that child has received an alternate meal. It really has a very devastating impact emotionally on children, and some of the kids won't even get in line or will be so embarrassed about the cheese sandwich they'll leave the cafeteria without eating it. We just want to stop that practice and make this an adult-to-adult conversation. And there, haven't there been at least a few cases where, the, the because of the nature of how the lunch line works, the student actually goes through the line, receives the hot meal, and then gets to the cashier, and that's when the switch has to be made, and then that food has already been served to a person, and so it actually gets thrown out, right? That's correct. The cafeteria workers are often... In some ways, the substitute parents, they are uh, the staff that look out for the kids, often know a lot about a family situation. Um, child may uh, indicate that their parents have split up, that a parent's incarcerated, is sick, um, and stuff's going on at home. Uh, they can read it on their faces. And so they're in the serving line. A child comes up to the cashier. 
uh, in at least one school district, uh, the protocol for the cafeteria worker is to make the letter C with her hand um, to signal to the food preparation line that they need to prepare a cheese sandwich. So they stop what they're doing with the other kids, go over, take two pieces of bread, a slab of cheese, put it on a plate, come over and swap out the hot meal for that cold cheese sandwich. And even though they try and be discreet, it's not discreet. You can see what's going on. The other kids know. Um, I've talked to cafeteria workers and said, well, what, what happens next? Well, we have to throw it out because it's been served to a child. And she's also said, you know, the kids cry. They don't understand what's going on. They can't kind of fathom why they can't eat the sandwich that they sell or the meal that they selected. So it's, it's rough for them. It puts the cafeteria workers in a position of being food police as opposed to ensuring that all children are fed. And there's plenty of studies out there that show that if you don't eat, uh, if you're not well-nourished, you're not going to learn. I would imagine the workers themselves feel pretty bad about doing that. They don't want to be in this position. They don't want to be the ones denying food to a child. Um, They're also, frankly, a little bit frustrated with some school policies that allow um, snack carts to come out after the last child is fed. Uh, That sometimes becomes an attractive nuisance for children uh, where they know that the ice cream and snacks will come out after lunch is served. So even children that may go to school with lunch money uh, may feel drawn or peer pressure to divert it to the snack cart, which is all marked up, uh, priced. Um, It's not totally junk food. It has to meet certain nutrition criteria, but, you know, Rice Krispies may be a a, a grain, (laughs) But it's still it's still a snack food that doesn't have all the components of the regular nutritious hot meal that the school districts serve. That's a balanced meal. Yeah. So there's other phenomenon that are going on that create some of these problems, both a student who ha- is in debt, doesn't have money, and students who may have money but are drawn to uh, distractions that we think are need to be really looked at closely by yeah. the school districts. Years ago, actually, I did a story on school lunch nutrition, and um, I found that in a lot of the schools, even though they had that kind of standard meal that, like, in the name of choice and variety, they were serving pizza and burgers on the side every day. You could have that as the option, and then it's hard. It's easy to imagine a kid having the pizza and burger every day. That That's right. That That is, in fact, a phenomenon that's really challenging a lot of school districts to both have the or, array of choices, but also make sure uh, children are fed. Some school districts will actually restrict uh, a student's ability to purchase the competitive foods um, if they haven't also purchased a hot lunch or haven't brought lunch with them or have any kind of debt. They will um, not allow debt to rack up on that side, which is appropriate. But it is a bigger issue of how we provide meals to students. I think if the regular school meal is attractive, is well presented, uh, is nutritious, and there's been a lot of great work to improve the quality of meals that are served. Uh, the competitive foods may become less attractive. Bottom line is there's kids who aren't getting served at all, right. and that's our concern. And there's families who are uh, unfortunately racking up some debt here. Uh, we know a number of districts, for example, uh, uh, that are not only serving cheese sandwich like Dartmouth, Fairhaven, Mattapoisett, Middleborough, Westport. A number of the districts charge the full meal rate, even though they've served an inferior meal to the child, like Marion and Dartmouth and Kushnet are serving the alternate cheese sandwich 
but billing the family as if the hot meal had been served. And that's troubling as well. Um, yeah, well, so I wanted to get back to that and some of the, the local communities because um, here on the South Coast, the schools, uh, school districts that had those policies in your report included Acushnet, Dartmouth, Fairhaven, Marion, Mattapoisett, and Westport. Um, there were a couple, Lakeville and Freetown, I believe, that were actually were not studied, and Rochester. But when when I called uh, most of these districts, some of them told me they weren't actually following the policy. And I know I talked to you about that again afterwards. So Dartmouth said they tried it, but they stopped doing it. Um, and Fairhaven, I think, said that it had the policy had been passed, but they never actually implemented it. Marion. Um, at the the elementary school in Marion, the Sipican school, the principal said she was paying for the meals out of her um, kind of donated community donated principal's account. Um, so we did we did actually after the story printed, we did actually receive a message from a parent. This was we weren't able to verify this, and I haven't gone back, so I'm not going to say what town. But we did receive a message from a parent saying that earlier in the year. Um, her child was served the alternate meal in one of these districts that claims they're not doing it. So, um, yeah, what, what do you say to that, that some many districts may not really be doing what their policy says they should be doing? Yeah, we, we've heard that. Uh, we the, the basis of our research was a content review of the school meal charge policies that were publicly available uh, and we looked at the uh, food services webpage where parents typically look for the menu and the fees and uh, school box accounts to set up online payments. We looked at the parent student handbooks that are typically provided at the beginning of the school year, um, often voluminous documents um, that uh, cover everything from school discipline and absences um, and sometimes uh, meal charge policy to the school committee policies themselves. So we looked in all three places for 154 districts to be as thorough as possible. Uh, we're aware that school districts uh, have policies up there that haven't been changed uh, for a long time, or maybe they're abandoned. But the bottom line is that the U.S. Department of Agriculture in 2016 um, required that school districts develop and publish policies by, by July 1st of 2017 that address the issue of school meal charges and meal shaming. And this was really based on um, uh, incidents that were going on in New Mexico, California, Texas, other states, where practices were highlighted in the news, uh, in communities of children's hands being stamped, wristbands saying, I owe money, um, and, you know, the embarrassing alternate cheese sandwich. So they wanted school districts around the nation that participate in the National School Lunch Program, which is the federal money that comes into every school district. They wanted them to publish their policies in a clear and understandable way so that parents uh, and anyone could find out how the school district is handling meal debt. It shouldn't be a secret. This should be uh, publicly posted. If the school has changed its policy, that's terrific, and we applaud that, but they really should be publishing uh, enough detail about their policies so, so that families understand what's expected, when they have to pay, what happens if they don't pay, and how meal debt will be addressed. Some of the practices that we've seen and, and have personal client experience with are troubling. 
to the extent that children are barred from extracurricular activities. If there's a debt, their siblings are barred from extracurricular activities. There's no graduation. Uh, the child is not given a cap and gown at graduation as a walk of shame. These are not appropriate practices, and I think transparency in public institutions, including school districts, is very critical here. One food service director I spoke to said that um, it seems to her that there are families who are kind of taking advantage of the system in the sense that they view the school lunch as something that's paid for by the federal government, and they take a very lax attitude toward paying for it, even if they may be able to afford it. Have you run into that at all? Uh, We've certainly heard uh, that we are not condoning uh, scoff laws. We're not uh, condoning uh, parents who uh, feel that they shouldn't have to pay. Um, But we do think there are, it's hard sometimes for schools to really judge and understand uh, what's going on. For example, at the beginning of the school year, a family may apply for free school meal status and be over income or reduced price and be over income and they're not eligible. We understand that. But later in the school year, uh, family situations shift around, jobs are lost, uh, families split up. Many, we have encountered many parents who simply do not know that they can apply any time of the school year. Children who receive supplemental nutrition assistance benefits, food stamp program, any family that receives food stamps, their child or any child in that family is automatically eligible for free school meal status, doesn't even have to file an application. Same is true for Medicaid coverage for very low-income families under 130% of poverty. And yet we find school districts not doing enough to routinely check to see if a child has now gotten onto the Medicaid or SNAP program. And our concern there is that families are very confused sometimes about what the protocol is, when they can apply, and school districts are giving up the federal money that could come to the school district if they properly certify that child for free school meals. So whenever there's a debt that accumulates five meals or something, that's an opportunity for the school district to take a couple of immediate steps. Number one, check the government database to see, is this child now getting food stamps or Medicaid, or is there a child in the family getting food stamps or Medicaid? Number two, send the family a free meal application and say, hey, you can still apply now that it's December or January and we'll help you with the application. Number three, talk to the family directly. We're not suggesting that school districts have to eat the debt. We're not suggesting they have to raise money to cover unpaid debt. That's not sustainable. But affirmative steps to reach out to families and understand what's going on and proactively help them without putting the kid in the middle, that's really the best solution. Uh, We know there's a struggle with some families who, you know, on every level may not feel they should pay anything, and and that has to be wrestled with separately, but the kids should not be put in the middle of this. Okay, another um, another person told me that this dynamic kind of changed several years ago when the state began prohibiting food service revolving accounts from carrying a negative balance. Did that, was that something that um, you view as as a change that, that affected this situation? I, I, I'm not familiar enough with how it worked in the past to comment on that. I, I think there's always been an issue of unpaid meal debt, uh, and it, as, as we understand it from national data, it has been growing, um, and it is correct that it can't be debt that's carried over to the next school year. So, for example, it, if a school district has unresolved debt, uh, it may 
involves them having to balance it by cutting in other places. We obviously think, uh, you know, schools need to um, kind of nip it off sooner than later by making sure they're doing everything possible to minimize that debt and have good protocol in place so that they're reaching out to families the minute they see debt in a discreet um, and respectful way. Um, they will at some point, I mean, there are families who have to pay and aren't and they have to be dealt with. But uh, I, I think we're seeing, at least in Massachusetts, um, even though the economy is improving, the cost of living is also going up. The cost of housing is going up. There's a lot more transient uh, employment, on-call employment, gig economy employment, people's income fluctuates a lot. We are seeing within the legal services community very kind of volatile incomes up and down. And, and once a family applies for and qualifies for free or reduced price meals, that child's eligible for the remainder of the school year even if that family gets a better job later in the school year. So once you apply and you're approved, your child is good to go for that school year and the first 30 days of the next school year if they qualify for free meal status. So for us, it's really recognizing how uh, uneven for uh, families their income is, um, however changing it is, and their right continually to try and get access to benefits that provide their child 100% federal reimbursed meals and pay the school district for that meal. So it's a dynamic situation, and I think districts often start out the beginning of school year screening the households for free meals, and then that's it. And it's not a continual activity. Some districts do a terrific job, and other districts are very don't put as much administrative resources into that. I want to uh, point out that in the New Bedford City Schools, um, where there is a significant amount of poverty, this really is not, this um, lunch shaming is not an issue because they have universal eligibility for free lunch. Is that right? That's correct. There's, uh, I, uh, both New Bedford and Fall River are what's called community eligibility provision schools. What that means is that every child in that school district uh, is, or in that school, if it's individual schools, is guaranteed a free meal. The school does not spend time processing applications for the National School Lunch Program, uh, does not spend time collecting the 40 cents uh, for each reduced price meals. Uh, every child goes through the line. And what happens is the more children that get free breakfast and free lunch, the schools can bill for additional, they, they bill for each meal served uh, at a particular uh, rate, reimbursement rate. And most school districts find that when they do the community eligibility provision, it actually boosts the revenue for the school district substantially. Uh, Springfield, which I know is not in your catchment area, has community eligibility, breakfast after the bell, free meals, uh, free lunch and breakfast, and they are bringing in a substantial amount of federal reimbursement, which has enabled them to improve the quality of the meals and start a, uh, a number of community gardens on the school property to help kids really understand um, where their food is coming from. Any school district that has 40% or more low-income children, it's a very particular definition of what that means, any school district with 40% or more economically disadvantaged children is eligible to give all students free school meals. And some there are districts that are not availing themselves of that option. So we hope over the course of the next couple of years to really work with those districts to maximize the federal revenue they can bring into their districts. Okay, and what other recommendations would you have for districts that maybe are not likely to meet that standard but could be doing more? 
Sure. Well, I think the first step is making sure that families know exactly what the school meal policy is by posting it uh, in very public location, very transparent. Uh, Often the beginning of the school year, myself as a parent, there's a huge packet of information I get by paper or email, medical forms to fill out, the National School Lunch Program application, photo releases. It's, It's jammed with information. So sometimes the school meal application form gets lost. I think it's an opportunity for school districts to reach out to any family the minute they see a child who's come in without school money. Um, I think that districts can really ramp up um, the awareness of that. They can also assist families with applying for SNAP, the food stamp program, which if any family receives supplemental nutrition assistance, their child automatically qualifies for free school meals and any other child in that family. So they can dial up outreach to those families that might be eligible for free school meals. And they can take a very close look at how they're communicating with kids about meal debt. Are they having the cafeteria workers talking to children in the lunch line? How does that make the child feel? How does it make the cafeteria worker feel? Those cafeteria workers often are much more aware of a family situation and have built relationships with children. So figuring out a better way to communicate not directly with the child, but to use the information that the cafeteria worker is seeing to help that family get on to the benefits they need, and developing simply better policies uh, that, that uh, enable a family to work out a payment plan uh, if they do get into debt, um, and particularly if they may be having the fluctuating income we talked about before. We understand schools have to cover their costs. They really need to keep focusing this issue on talking with the adults or legal guardians, the parents, who are responsible for this debt. So those are steps they can take to reduce the debt, to make it an adult conversation, and to really take the uh, children out of this problem that they're trying to fix. And I wanted to ask you, you mentioned before our interview here that um, one district had just recently changed its policy to more accurately, accurately reflect what it's actually doing. Is that right? Yeah, we just learned a couple of days ago that, or actually yesterday, that the City of Framingham School Committee approved uh, 100% of vote by the school committee to reform its school meal debt protocol. Um, and they, the core of their policy is they're now going to feed all the children the same reimbursable hot meal. They're not going to be feeding the alternate cheese sandwich. They're not going to be singling out students in any way for negative treatment, which I understand includes not barring them from other activities that kids would normally be able to engage in, like extracurricular activities, and that they will have a protocol in place for direct communication with parents. So this looks, uh, from what we understand, to be a terrific uh, move in the right direction. There's other school districts like Amherst Pelham that have done this. They are not a community eligibility, 100% free school meal district, but they have taken the step of saying we're not going to pull kids into this discussion. We're going to feed kids and make sure they're ready to learn. I think it's important to remember that Massachusetts spends about 15000 per child per year on education, and it's a big, big investment, uh, obviously, in our education system, but when kids are hungry, they're not learning. Ironically, in my daughter's district, uh, every child is fed on MCAS testing days. They all get breakfast. They all get lunch. Well, wouldn't you think the children would learn the material that they're being tested on for MCAS if they were fed every day? Hmm. So I think it's really worth us looking at what is the difference in educational outcomes when you feed kids. There's so much strong evidence that shows 
that children have better educational outcomes when they're fed. Again, we understand that the school meal piece is not part of the education budget the school committees have, but when you're looking at outcomes, you can't learn when you're hungry. So every district that can wrestle with that in a more creative and adult way, I think is gonna see better outcomes. What should districts actually do if they're trying to recover funds from a family? I think I can tell you what we think they shouldn't do. Uh, we don't think they should uh, hand it off to debt collection agencies that add more debt to the family and the school district doesn't recover that much of it in the first place. Um, and they shouldn't be using kids as pawns in the debt collection practices. Um, I think a number of districts have, uh, first of all, acted much more uh, preemptively, much earlier in the process to not let the debt get up into the high numbers by actually working with a family the minute they start to see um, five or ten meals in debt. Let's work with you. Let's figure out what's going on. Uh, Principals have the authority when they see a child uh, that seems to be struggling. Perhaps they're aware that the child's parents have split up. The family is is too dysfunctional at that moment to actually file an application. A principal or designee has the authority to file an application for the National School Lunch Program for individual children that they perceive to be struggling. Uh, That's allowed under the federal law. Um, I think they should be much more proactive in doing that. Um, So I think there's a lot of steps schools can do to minimize uh, the debt up front. Uh, If a family does have debt, I think there's uh, a number of other protocols they can take, sitting down with a family to work out a payment plan, really helping them understand you know, what the school can cover and what the family has to cover. Um, some school districts have encouraged uh, GoFundMe options for meal debt. Um, that's great. We applaud that. It's not sustainable. Um, I think the core issue is to minimize the debt up front and not let it get to the point where you have to uh, take extreme measures against families uh, to recover the debt. Okay. Patricia Baker from the Mass Law Reform Institute. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you.